Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Mark Salisbury. This is his uh, third appearance on the podcast. He is now co-founder and CEO of Tuition Fit. Previously, he was something, something, something at Augustana College. And if you listen to the episode... <laughs> I don't. He did numbers, and we just. And in episode seventeen, we discussed uh, hard questions for college admissions officers. Episode twenty-eight: the first three weeks of college. In many ways, tuition fit is a natural outgrowth of those of his interests and those conversations. So, Mark, serious and important question: What yes, is, sir? What is tuition fit? Tuition fit is a way for the public to solve the lack of college pricing transparency problem all by themselves. And we do it pretty simply by just recognizing that the, the actual prices that students pay has always been sort of seen as this uh, holy grail information that no one could get a hold of, mm-hmm. like it was hidden away in a vault somewhere. But the reality is, is that information has always been out there and available it's just been scattered across a million uh, admissions award letters that millions of students receive every year. Mm-hmm. So, but there's no way. There's no, up until now. Let me just sorry. Up until yeah. now, there was no way for me to like get on Mr. Google and ask him what's the price of Augustana College or the University of Iowa, for that matter. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right, and and. Unfortunately, you know, people have tried to do that and they'll find the sticker price that a school has advertised. Mm -hmm. And that sticker price um, decades ago, well, it was a lot cheaper and it was a lot closer to what most people were asked to pay. Mm -hmm. Uh, But over the decades, that sticker price has become sort of an absurd off the chart number. And then the colleges have discounted more and more so that now the average discount is uh, that a, for a typical college is, is 49.9% in the mm-hmm. most recent data. Yeah I, was, um, yeah, I was thinking after our sort of pre-podcast conversation, I was thinking, you know, one thing to do if you're a truly demonic college president would be <laughs> to charge $1 million dollars. But, oh, you laugh. I know, you but laugh. we're going to just kind of, you're actually going to pay 20000 after the uh, tuition, after you get tuition grants, whatever those are, you know. Right. There have been presentations at conferences of college presidents and other senior lackeys, and they, the presentations have walked people through mm-hmm. what's the inevitable outcome of the path we're on right now. Yeah. And you won't find a college president that tells you the current path is sustainable. Everybody knows that it's absolutely impossible to keep doing this because it's just absurd. Maybe so, if they stopped going to the conferences, they could actually have independent thoughts. Oh, and look, they would separate, save separate. a lot of money. Have you ever have you ever booked one of those conferences? Like no. the hotel fees are like $400 a night. I've never gotten $400 worth of sleep in one night. Ever. <laughs> okay, we're going we're going on a little so we're going We are track. slightly off track, but so this let's, is what let's, happens when you're talking to an old friend, right? You're yeah, just talking about yeah, stuff. It's been so long. So, so, but so you, to, you're let saying, me finish this. Yeah, yeah, let me sorry, finish this. I've got thought. them right up. Yeah. They're just uh-huh, uh-huh. dying to find out what tuition fit is. Yeah. So the point of tuition fit is simply to say, look, everybody's got one piece of the data. Uh-huh. Let's just set up a mechanism where everybody can share their one piece of data. We get it into a central quote unquote location. We protect everybody's identity so that there's no – so everyone's got anonymity. But no we reta- have no retaliation to- from angry admissions officers. Right. But we have – we have, and we'll talk about that in a little bit too. But um, <laughs> there's, there is a, a way then to organize the data so that then anybody who shares at least one letter can see this data for free and can see all of the different prices that – any other college has offered a student similar to them. And similar means 
with similar uh, financial need and similar academic merit, right? Mm -hmm. So financial need is essentially a number called the EFC, which stands for Estimated Family Contribution, and that comes from the FAFSA that every student is expected to complete. And then academic merit just comes from uh, a test score or the corresponding high school GPA, and there's a way to sort of crosswalk those things. Mm -hmm. So once you've got that in a central system, then anybody who's shared, you can just go on there and look and see, okay, I've been offered price X from this college over here that I applied to. I'm now looking at $10,000 a year in debt from this school's offer. Um, I don't really want to pay that, but am I stuck or are there other options? Mm -hmm. And sure enough, you'll find, yes, there's another school over there that's you've heard of that's pretty interesting. You just never t took the time to look at it. Their price for a similar student is much less. You can then reach out to them and say, hey, can we talk? And because the demographics have shifted as they have and because now the majority of schools every year don't meet their enrollment goals ever, those schools are still looking for students all the way up to August and you'll be able to find the college at a lower price. That's brilliant. Um, and it's free. And it's it. the whole idea here is, let, I mean, we've got a really, really inefficient system that is costing everybody a lot of extra money. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of like those those little uh, old, they look like a phone booth in the mall, but it's a thing where they just blow the fan really hard and lots of money flies around. You have to yeah. try to grab a dollar bill. But there's a ton of money in there that's floating around that nobody gets a hold of, right? Mm -hmm. That's that's the, that's what the system is. And what 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 this allows people to do is just circumvent a lot of that and get to a place where no you can find a price for a much you can find a better price and college doesn't have to be as expensive as it seems to be for an awful lot of people let's uh step back and uh think about the college admissions process uh you, yeah. one of your little blog posts uh, for tuition fit you observed that once this was a short process Oh, so long ago. We called it the early 90s, I think it was. Um, <laughs> That's right. It, it was a short process. It was simple. I mean, it was still soul-crushing and humiliating, but it was it was relatively, you applied to five colleges, uh, and that was it. Uh, you, mm -hmm. you paid, what, 15 bucks, 20 bucks, um, maybe? Maybe, yep. For the privilege of doing that. That was irritating enough. There was no universal application or anything like that. Um, mm-hmm. Want to walk through that? I mean, because it, it's it's still on paper. If we put it on a whiteboard, it's only like five steps. It's not that hard. Right, right. Yeah, so, I mean, the nature of the process itself in those sort of couple of steps hasn't – those steps haven't necessarily changed. But within those steps, all kinds of complications have emerged um, as a whole bunch of things have happened in the college landscape that have really changed the nature of this. Um, you know, I, I – I will, I will admit it. I'm a little bit older. I went to college in the mid eighties and you started thinking about it in your senior year of high school. You maybe went and visited a place or two. Um, you applied to two schools maybe, and, um, you talked to some people and then you got into one and then the, that price tag was pretty close to what the sticker price was going to be. And then you went and, um, it was just the next step. There were lots of colleges to go to. And if you went to one of them, fine. Right. Um, now the process is, especially for the sort of type A over-caffeinated part of our culture. Which is called Charlottesville, Virginia, actually. <laughs> I think it's suburbia almost in every part of the country. No, this um, is pretty much the epicenter of that, but go on. Yeah. Nice. Thank you. Yeah, uh -huh. I'll stay away. Yeah, please. Um, but, but the, the, uh, the process, people start talking about it in their sophomore year of high school and they start saying like, you got to start looking at schools in your junior year, beginning of your junior year, you got to have your short list narrowed down by the time, oh, you know, the middle of year, the late man, part of your junior year. You're sleeping. And, you're, it's sophomore and, year now, man. And it's, yeah, well, it, by the kidding. time we finish this conversation, it might be freshman year. Yeah, it's true. The, the point is, is that people are asked to narrow down, you know, it's classic choice overload problem, right? Mm -hmm. There's 4,000 some colleges around the country. And you tell a 16-year-old or a 15-year-old, narrow down your choices and they all look the same when you go online or you look at their brochures. And so kids just, they finally go blah, I'll just pick the ones I've heard of and avoid that thing. Mm -hmm. Um, but 
this angst that kicks in, kicks in, it almost washes out all of high school at this point. So you're just fretting about college choice before you've even gotten to drive. And, and there's, there's also, and then um, this angst then puts Im- immense burdens on the idea of what college will do for you. Um, mm-hmm. If I don't get into UCLA, my life will never be the same. Right. Which is you true. And I might've, but you might have seen this. But yeah. yeah. But not for any particularly important reason. No, but uh-huh. it, it'll be different, but not for what you think. I mean, you won't meet the right. same people. Uh, you might not have the or, same lifelong friends, but that's always going to be, you know. Right. For the, you know, 40 years of research on college students, over and over and over, what we now know is that it doesn't really, I mean, it, what matters most is what you do while you're in college, not what college you go to. If you're talking about income and you want a lot of money in your salary the first day out of school, then absolutely it's going to matter what major you pick. But again, the major you pick is a lot more important than which school you're at when you pick that major. People people aren't going to believe that. I I just don't think people believe that. And that yet we find it over and over and over. I, we'll have to. We'll include some links to those studies because they are right. Stanford did a big study that came out con- last year. Complete, well, and for the show notes, we'll have some links because they are completely contrary uh, to what everyone believes, except right. for people who are actually teaching in colleges and who know that. Um, to be honest, you're going to get the same education if you're a history major at St. Olaf's or Augustana or Lake Forest. And mm-hmm. those different or UC Riverside or UC different. Riverside. There's but those are right. very different Midwestern colleges. I rattled three of them at least, and then the UC yep, Riverside. Yep. But it's really a lot has to do with the people that you get in. Um, you're getting um, different types of demographics uh, are coming in, but the education. You know, we all respect each other, and we do pretty much the same thing. You know, it's so interesting, and I think actually a lot of people actually believe have believed this all along. Mm-hmm. They just get hung up in the what rankings have done to the conversation, and they just get sucked into um, – they sort of know that there's stuff they don't know about this process. And the colleges and the universities and the whole system sort of takes advantage of knowing that people know a lot less than they do, than the colleges do. Yeah. And it's a classic case of information asymmetry yeah. where – Colleges know a lot more than the public does. The public sort of sees the super complicated thing that's really uh, almost deliberately vague, and they know that there really isn't much other choice, so they give in. And, and then when you give in, you start to buy things that and believe things that you know is not true. I mean, if you were to talk to parents, people who are parents of kids going to college right now, and you ask them about their life story, you and I talked about this. We did a study at, at Augustana College years ago where we looked at this very same question. And when people started talking about their life story and all of the curves and changes and unexpected things that happened to them in their life, mm-hmm. and then you were to ask them, Can you, do you think that all of the things that happened to you and all the choices you made are directly applicable to your four years in college? Nobody said, oh, absolutely. No, they looked at things that happened to them before they went to college. They talked about things they learned after they went to college. So, it, you know, there's absolutely lots about life trajectory. But a lot of things that you do in life start you on a trajectory. And then later on, you certainly have options to change that trajectory again yeah. and change that trajectory again. And you're right. The Kids feel like they get this message like they got to pick the right school, like there's a perfect dream school for them. And if somehow if they don't go to that school, they're going to end up a meth head under a bridge somewhere. And that scares the heck out of people. And I get it. Everyone's seen Breaking Bad. They know. Yeah, like, but that only happens if you major in English. So that's all right. Just... Right. And by the way, uh, I'm an English major. Right. Yeah, so, well, there you go. And, you know, I have I have not spent any time under bridges that I'm aware of. So um, so the point is, is that there's a whole lot of mythology that people get sucked into as a function of this process being really complicated. And I mean, complicated as a verb, complicated by a lot of folks that benefit from it being complicated. Any um, 
business is going to well we had a conversation a couple weeks ago about john wanamaker and his store in philadelphia and this is kind of related in in that before wanamaker is one of the first stores in the nation to have price tags on items uh yeah interesting which is the ultimate information scarcity but in many ways we've got just false price tags on items now we just it's like a million dollars, but we'll sell it to you for 50 cents or, or, you know, related to that. Well, and that's, and, and that's what has, what is so crazy about the college pricing issue right now is that not only does it drive the public crazy and it scares them away from all kinds of things that might be real options. Um, but now because there are more seats in colleges than there are students to fill them, this pricing debacle is hurting the colleges just as badly mm -hmm. because the students are, you know, scrolling through schools and they see a sticker price that's $60,000 and they simply say, you know what, no, no way. I'm not even going to look any further than that sticker price because they either want one of two things. They either don't know that that's school discounts and they just say, there's no way I can pay $60,000 a year to go to college here or they know that the school discounts, but because nobody tells them how much that discount's going to be, especially for them as an individual, they say, look, even if the school does discount, I don't think there's any way they're going to discount at 50, 60 percent to get it into the range where I could actually afford it. So I'm not going to waste all the time that it takes to apply and spend the $50 to submit an application fee just to find out that I can't afford it anyway. So thousands of kids don't apply to the schools with these high price tags, when now what we know is that in many cases, those kids could actually get better prices at a private school than they could get at a public institution. But they don't know that, so they don't apply. Mm -hmm. And the schools that are now desperate for enrollments never get a shot at those students because the kid doesn't apply. Let's um, so there we've got this old information. We've got bad information. We've got no information. Uh, the kids <laughs> worst. worst information. Yeah, the uh, uh, people are putting a lot of hope on UCLA or or you know what, the the ideal school, which will make them into the ideal best person. Um, mm -hmm. They and then you say that they're we're then hurtling towards a final choice, and it does feel like that. We're just sort of uh, yep. descending into the the hole, making that final choice. And have you heard back from the school yet? Have you heard? Yep. Oh, I haven't heard back, and it's just oh, it's awful. Right. Um, what um, what does that whole process that awful modern process for the sort of middle class meritocrat? Uh, what mm -hmm. does that look like from the college side? Because it looks very different. I mean, I'm the worst person to know. Yeah. I'm a professor. Um, yep. and we don't really know what goes on up there in, in the admissions office. But what does it look like from the admissions office side? Because they're in their own way. I, I do know this part. They're as desperate, if not more so, than the students or potential students. Right. No, this is just such a fascinating question. And to delve into this, it really starts to get just interesting and maddening all at once. Yeah. So from an institution standpoint, they're trying to get as many applications as they absolutely can, and they're trying to do that for two reasons. One is because U.S. News rankings gives them more points when they get more applications, and so that helps them in their ranking, and they think that that matters. Turns out it doesn't, but they don't buy it. So there, let me get this straight. If I had 150 applications for 100 spots, just to keep it ideal here and every mm -hmm. one of those 150 applications were from 4.0 valedictorians who had done uh, got had each had three varsity letters i still would stink because yes okay. yes all right because the what the rankings did long time ago is to say number of applications is a proxy for interest mm -hmm. and schools that are better are schools where more students are interested in going there and this is how clemson can raise its uh, academic profile Yes. By, by winning a national football championship. Because well, more, yes. Because more it's people funny. are going to apply now than right. they did before when their right. a program was in a slump. And what people have found is that institutions have found is that, yes, they get more applications, but they get more applications from the kinds of students that they tend to reject. <laughs> so, but they, they're, still, they're, they're still they're still moving up. Right. But they're so, still moving up because they got a lot of applications. Well, no, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. Um, and they make a lot of money. I think you and I talked about this yesterday that 
um, folks did some studies of the amount of money that some schools make off of the applications that they reject. Yeah, yeah. And you're easily into the millions of dollars. That is incredible. So it's a cash cow just to reject kids. So if – yeah. Aside yeah. from that part, because that gets down to sort of like deep state conspiracy theory stuff. <laughs> um, but the reality is, is that the schools are trying to get a lot of applications for a second reason, which is um, the response of individuals to this effort to get more applications was the common application. So students could fill out one applications and then just with a click of a button, send it to more schools, right? Mm-hmm. So students started applying to more schools as well, right? And so the, this is what made the selectivity number become pretty dubious now is because, yes, you're getting more applications, but that's because the kids are sending out more applications to more schools. So it's not quite right to say that you're, more in, you're getting more interest. It's just that the same number of kids are sending out more apps, right? So, um, so but the schools know that because all of that is added to the mix, which let's not talk about all the money that all of that is costing, um, but you still have the same number of students trying to get into the same number of spots at the same number of schools, right, underneath all that. Mm-hmm. The schools know that because there are fewer students now, if you look at the demographics, there are fewer students graduating from high school than there were in 2010. And in 2024, that number drops like a stone because – when the last recession kicked in, a lot of people said, you know what? I can't afford to have a child right now, so I'm not going to. So, um, so uh, the schools know that they need more applications just to end up with the number of students they're trying to bring in in a given freshman class. So they're trying to get as many applications just because they're panicked. They have to get students because that's what keeps the lights on, right? And this is what admissions officers and vice presidents of admissions, they lose their job over is not getting right. sufficient. Right. Yeah. So they're trying to get as many applications in. Now, they still have the same number of people to evaluate all those applications that they had before, which means that they spend all less time on each application. They have to fly through them. There's a whole bunch of stuff that's been written recently about yeah. the essays and the degree to which students can exaggerate on those essays with nobody fact checking them, um, you know, and, and, and what makes a good essay. Nobody's ever really studied the predictiveness of quality, quote unquote, good essay. My suspicion, but, I mean, if I, if I may, I, I think that a lot yeah. of them are hiring part-time people to enter in stuff and basically then data mine the, um, data mine the information from the apps, um, to try, you know, try to figure out a way of doing it. That's my sus- suspicion of, uh, from a local school uh, that I've that would that would be a much that would be a sane way to I mean I don't think that a lot of schools are doing that much with that um, that thoughtful an approach I think there's still a lot of schools that are just go with what you know do it the way you did it before Mm -hmm. and hope that it works out Mm -hmm. Um, there's a lot of companies coming into the admissions world that are making a lot of money off of schools because those schools have just never been very data-driven in the first place because they didn't have to be, mm-hmm. um, which is a whole other story of money being spent on the admissions world. Um, it is absolutely true that colleges spend easily millions of dollars a year just to bring in a class of 500 kids. Um, that's, a, that's amazing. They spend millions yeah. of dollars for 500 kids. Yeah. Of course, yeah, they're going to make many millions from those 500 kids, but still – they're cutting maybe. it. They're cutting it. Yeah. Okay. Maybe. Right. Maybe. Yeah. But that and that number keeps going up. How much mm-hmm. it costs to recruit students. So from the admissions side, though, they they're just trying to get as many applications because if a student doesn't apply to a school, uh, there that's the end of it, right? You can't really consider each other any farther than that. And so the way that and the way the funnel works is that there are these sort of drop dead stages, right? Where if you're not there, you're dead to each other. So what percentage of those applications will result in students actually, well, even being uh, admitted, let alone um, be, being actually entering a class? So that's where it gets pretty funny. Mm-hmm. At the really elite schools, because they're the ones that have succeeded in this world of trying to get as many applications, their admission rate from applications is incredibly low. And that's the number you see touted all over the place and used to sort of get people to be afraid that they can't get into college. Mm -hmm. But for the vast majority of schools, 
the acceptance rates are like 60, 70, 80, 90 percent, mm-hmm. right? They accept all of them or most of them because they still got to get a class to enroll. Mm-hmm. And that's the other part where you, you get these – because kids have applied to so many schools now, your what they call yield rate of admitted to enrolled – you're thrilled as a school if you're a, if your yield rate's twenty five percent. So you've already admitted all these kids, and so now you're just trying to get rate, you're, let, me, let me re, let me repeat that. You're thrilled if the yield rate of the applications you've got is twenty five percent. Nope, let's not, let's get that quite not quite okay. right, my dear friend Al Zamone. I'm a strain. Um, <laughs> the the yield rate is not just from the kids who applied. The kids who are admitted. You have sent acceptance letters to, right? Oh, oh so you got a ton of applications. Let's say you got 6,000 applications mm-hmm. and you admitted 5,000 of those, which is not unusual for a typical small college. Hmm. Then of those 5,000, mm-hmm. you're just trying to get 750 to show up. And you'll be thrilled if you get 750. Yeah. So um, if you get, I mean, schools, and, and I'm picking those numbers sort of arbitrarily just to make the point that the yield rate is from the students that you've admitted mm-hmm. that then decide to enroll. And if you can get 25% of the students that you have admitted to enroll, you are thrilled. And I mean, there are hundreds of schools that are below 20%. And, and let me uh, – one thing I do know from personal experience is that uh, that moment when you're waiting for the um, – that class to be finalized, that yield rate of the new mm-hmm. – is uh, for most departments, especially in the humanities, is uh, really uh, thrilling in a bad way uh, because mm-hmm. your course – your whole budget depends on it. Um, if if a class is down 30 from its projected um, – if if it was supposed to be seven fifty and it turns out to seven twenty, that has uh, has bad effects on on lots of people, mm-hmm. uh, and and so departments live in fear to find out what that um, th- what the whether they'll make that number. If they, mm-hmm. and in fact, if they go up, if it's uh, goes up like thirty or fifty or whatever or something ridiculous like that, that means you get to hire more people. Um, all of yeah, a sudden, you're, a- you're in the money. There's a dark side to that too, because a lot of times you don't you don't know what that number is going to be. If you were to have a year where you suddenly had a windfall of students, you were yeah. going for seven twenty and you got seven fifty, because you don't you don't have that seven fifty at May first. This is another thing that folks need to understand. The public needs to understand. Mm-hmm. You'll hear May first, May first, May first. College decisions by May first, May first, May first. True. No, no. For the elite schools, the maybe 50 colleges and universities around the country, May 1st really does matter a lot. For everybody else, it's somewhere between, yeah, it sort of matters to May 1st, huh? doesn't matter at all because you don't have your class full by then. Mm-hmm. So you're still bringing students in in May, in June, in July, and even in August. And that's a function, again, of trying to fill your class and not being able to do it. You're going to work and work and work and work to get those students. Now, the reason that that's important for uh, the comment comment you made about the humanities folks is that you uh, don't know the number that you're planning for until the very end of the summer. And let's say all of a sudden that in late July, somebody says, you know what, we need to hire another person to teach History 101. Mm -hmm. Um, You got three weeks. Go find someone. Yeah. Let's this, say you're in a small town or a rural community somewhere as a college. Yeah. Um, can you find someone really good? You're just looking for somebody who sort of knows, you know, which party Lincoln was in. Like yeah. that's <laughs> at this point, that's all you're doing yeah. because you're scrambling um, and you're trying to find somebody at the last minute. So there's a two edged sword there that yeah. that is a really tough for for folks that work in the humanities for sure. And I'm sure that, I, I don't know the numbers, but I, I suspect that drives the adjunct uh, crisis or the, the the sort of continuing uh, agony of adjuncts as much as um, large lecture classes. At, it uh, certainly exacerbates it. Yeah. 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 Um, 
what does it mean when uh, admissions people talk about building a class and how does this relate to that? I mean, does that matter anymore given the competition? Get, so here's where, here's where, you know, you read the articles in the national press about college enrollments and admission cycles and recycle and everything else. And you get a picture that is a function of the most elite colleges, the name brands, the bumper sticker schools. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not the case for most institutions. Now, the concept of building a class is the idea that um, you want to have some ethnic diversity, you want to have some socioeconomic diversity, you want to have some geographical diversity, and you know what? You need a bassoon player, you need an oboe player, you need a quarterback on the football team, you need some swimmers, right? You have this whole kind of set of students that you need in each class to do all the things that you also offer musically, athletically, you know, it's pretty hard to do um, Shakespeare without male actors. (laughs) So, um, so you need to have some guys that come in and do theater, right? So that's what they mean by building a class. Um, And that can extend to, hey, we are physics, we don't have quite as many physics majors as we used to. So let's try to get more kids that want to do physics, right? the really well-off schools can afford to do that um, and to really focus on that. The less well-off schools, they're just trying to get to their number. Um, they're trying to do that too, but you know, priorities are priorities. You're just trying to have enough people to keep the lights on and not lay people off. So, so telling me uh, out of the what, – what was the number you gave? 4,000 – how many colleges in America? Um, Depending on what number you use, there's, you know, there's, there's, depending on what number you use, let's just say 4,000. But okay. so if you were to per- say schools that qualify for Pell Grant money, there's 7,000 some. And if you were talking about um, four-year schools that are of a certain cachet, you're looking at like 1,500. I mean, it, it yeah, depends right. on how, but, but for where people are looking to go to college to get a get a postgraduate degree. Let's just pick 4,000. Okay. And of those, how many do you think are worried these days about building a class? Well, they're all worried about it. Right? Yeah. They're um, about completing a class, but they, but like it's, it's, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get yeah. it. It seems to me what you're saying is only the really elite schools now have the luxury of building a class down to the bassoon player. Right. Right. Well, um, you know, I'm sure that there's going to be a lot of folks here that'll use this to lament the bassoon crisis across yeah. America. Well, it's a but terrible thing. It's quite it is, It's a terrible thing. There's no under problem. the bridge with English majors. So, you know. <laughs> so, um, but, the, but, you know, last year, I think it was two-thirds of private colleges didn't make their enrollment goals. Um, half of all universities and colleges didn't make their enrollment goals. Um, you know, so the level of concern um, to make your class. And, and when people say make their class from a school standpoint, they mean two things. One is get an, the number of students that you need and then get the number of students that are on average paying X amount of money to match the budget that you set, right? Mm-hmm. So you're trying to hit both of those things at the same time and that's complicated enough in, in and of its own right. Um, but... You know, there's very few schools that just say, you know, I've got no worries about enrollment. Mm-hmm. Um, and many of those that have worries, their worry is at a very basic level. Like, we just had to get enough kids. So what does the um, – you've been accepted or does the tuition negotiation end with acceptance or does it, is it just the beginning? That's, that's – that's just the beginning. Okay. So um, what does that look like from the, the, the parental perspective? Uh, when they so get the, the, yeah, that's yeah. a really important question, and it's a phase of the, that that I, I think is not talked about enough, but it's become really important and really detrimental. So folks have decided to apply to a small number of schools, and th- that application so – they've, so they've narrowed it down to a, a small number of schools from a very large number, and they've had to narrow it down um, with – whatever criteria they've decided to use, but they can't use actual price because they don't know what their actual price is going to be. Mm -hmm. So there's some guesswork. 
there is some either they're very conservative and they just simply won't look at any schools that look like they're really expensive or they're they do that whole sort of reach match safety thing which i think is reasonable but sort of flawed in a bunch of different ways but either way you're just trying to you're you're guessing ballparking maybe estimate you know sort of educated guessing to narrow that group of schools down then when you get accepted let's say you get accepted to three quarters of those schools um so now you have let's just say you have four prices now to choose from um you don't have the actual prices from every institution across the country at all you have four prices facing you and you think that that's your choices. You have four, four prices. You don't think, well, I can go out and get a bunch more because the, the sort of traditional understanding of how this process works is that that's what you do. You pick these schools and you've gotten yourself emotionally invested in X, Y, and Z. Um, so now you got four prices. And you're hoping that you can afford one, at least one of those four prices. Mm-hmm. Obviously, if you're well off, doesn't matter, right? But for most of America, this phase is now the scariest part because um, if you balk on all four of them, you sort of admit failure, right? Like, oh, well, I, I guess I'm not going to go to college at all because I can't afford it. And you've got all of this energy built up and, 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 and passion about trying to get to college. And as a parent, you're thinking, well, we've got to get my kids to a good college. And you know, they, we got to have their life better than mine and all of those, you know, very old narratives and very powerful narratives. Um, but now you get these four prices and inevitably those four prices are surprises mm-hmm. because the only thing, you know, if you've really done a lot of research is, you know, what the sticker price is from a school and you know what their average net price is two years ago, not now, but two years ago. And because there's so much disparity in pricing, in other words, if a school is $50,000 a year, there are kids that are paying 50000 and there are kids that are paying nothing and everything in between. It's sort of one of those great examples where you have an average and nobody's actually the average. They're all distributed around it, right? So now you're that family and you've gotten yourself excited about hopefully you'll get the scholarship, blah, blah, blah. Then you get – your award letter and you get your actual price. And in most cases, schools cannot meet your full need. And what that means is when you fill out the FAFSA, you get this estimated family contribution from the federal government. And lots of people say, well, that number's too high and yada, yada, yada. And not going to argue about that right now, but they get a number. And then the f- most schools can't get the student's scholarships down so that that family is only expected to pay that EFC even. They'll get it to $5,000 above the EFC or $10,000 above the EFC. And this is a term, the term is called gapping, mm-hmm. right? Where in the, in the higher ed, they will say, well, these, these schools gap. Most schools gap because they simply can't put together enough money to get to that spot. And so now the family looks and they've got four prices and in every single case, they're gonna they're they're looking at just from the EFC, and let's forget about whether the EFC is an actual amount of money that they can pay. From the EFC to the price that they're being asked to pay is several thousand dollars, maybe ten, fifteen thousand dollars in some cases, and the only way to come up with that is to borrow it, mm-hmm. right? And because you've got only four prices. And because you think those are your only options and you don't know what you don't know, the pressure is built up to, to have that family over a barrel mm-hmm. and say, you're going to pick one and figure out how to pay for it. And that is one of the big drivers of our student debt bubble that is now over $1.5 trillion and has gone up 500 plus percent in the, since two, early 2000s mm-hmm. because that's where families are stuck. They and they all will say this. If I'd have known what these prices were going to be when I was looking at which schools to apply to, I would have selected different schools to apply to. Yeah. But I didn't know what I didn't know, 
and now I'm over a barrel. This is why people are, are incurring additional expense by starting to buy tuition insurance, which is a thing I had not heard about until very recently. Right. All of the different ways to sort of circumvent this problem that for most people they know they're going to run into and they're just sort of cringing at, okay, how painful is this going to actually be? Mm-hmm. Um, right? Parents who are borrowing against their retirement to pay for their kid's college because that's their only choice. And if they right? drop out, then they're stuck with a bill um, to someone uh, for a loan or, or what. Right. Who doesn't even have a college degree. So they've got no degree and debt. Yeah. Like the double whammy. So – this, I mean, this is the thing that I've been watching for decades and just watching it get worse and worse and worse and seeing it as a really crazy problem because it's, it's really hurting both sides of this equation, this interaction, the public and the college. Well, let's talk about that because from what does this look like, this negotiation from the college side? Um, how does it even work? I mean, how do they determine how much to discount off the sticker price? So you're basically you're getting an Impala, but there's a Mercedes uh, S-Class uh, sticker on it. Um, <laughs> and you know that, well, uh, oftentimes, I mean, I think a lot of people think that they're going to have to pay for the full Mercedes price for the Impala. Mm-hmm. Then they're, sometimes they're a little surprised to figure out they can like get it back more towards the Impala level um, or draw it back a little bit. But how is that, how are those decisions being made by the emissions office? Do they have someone from the treasurer like leaning over their shoulders saying, no, oh, okay, no, easy now, or otherwise we're going to be in shortfall for next year? Or right. How does that work? At its base, what every college does is they have a matrix. Mm-hmm. And some schools' matrix includes maybe nine cells. Some schools' matrix will inclu- include 30 cells. But the matrix is a, on one axis is academic merit and another axis is need. And within that uh, matrix, there's cells, and they want to get certain number of students within each cell um, that have X number of need, X number of need, and and Y number of merit, and um, that group of kids are going to pay on average this much. Mm-hmm. So they'll have four or five different scholarships that are packages that are you know sort of you know they're always called like the dean scholarship. And then the president scholarship, and then the board of trustees scholarship, and then the sort of, I don't know, uh, overlord of Mordor scholarship, whatever you want, whatever's that's, the next that's one. That's the one I had. Mm-hmm. That's the one you had. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they gave me a tuna sandwich when I went to college. Yeah, I know. Um, that was that was a different scholarship. Yeah. That's a different scholarship, right? Um, so they organize it that way, and. At, the, at its base, students end up getting plotted into one of those matrices. And yes, there's some need-based aid. Some of it comes from the federal government and some of it comes from the state government. That's essentially a pass-through that then the colleges pass on to the student and counting for their, their package. They might get some academic awards. There might be some other scholarships in there. But at the end of the day, the students end up in this matrix. Now, colleges will often say, we want to take all this stuff into account and all of your co-curricular stuff and who you are and your essay and everything else. And they may have lots of different named scholarships and titles for different pots of money. But at the, in the end, um, students generally fall into this plot. Mm-hmm. And so that's how the colleges are thinking about it. So they're, and, they, and they believe that their education is worth the money they're asking you to pay. Mm-hmm. And they really believe fervently in their institution and they've got lots of good reasons to but they plot students this way and they think about what they know about those students and then they send them their award package so when the family then sees that um the possibility exists and it happens actually very frequently now that the family calls the school up and says we really like your school and really like want like to go there, but this price is just more than we can afford. And the colleges will have what they call an, a process to appeal your aid uh, package. And that's just a, a sort of fancy, maybe patriarchal term for we'll negotiate because we really need you. It right? does sound very medieval. Yes, it does. You know, appeal to the king and maybe we will grant you. <laughs> if you hold on... The- Hold on to the door of the of, of Founders Hall uh, all, for the entire <laughs> right. night. Then you will receive a reduction in tuition on your deathbed. Yeah. So, um, but you know, the reality is for the for the public, 
they're negotiating, right? They think of it like going out and buying a car where somebody says, well, here's our sticker price. And then the student says, well, this is what I can afford to pay. And then you try to meet somewhere in the middle. Um, that's the way that the public sees it. Mm-hmm. Um, colleges hate to use the word negotiate because they think that they're in the position and traditionally they have been, they're sort of in the position of power and they're allowing you to be accepted into their club. Mm-hmm. I mean, college. So, um, that it's, it's very interesting to see the, the ways that the public sees this game and, and the, or process and the way that the colleges see this process. So um, if we think about that matrix, um, the people, I mean, I don't want to be cynical here, but the people in the promotional literature are going to be the ones who really max out both the X and the Y axes and who are both needy and also smart. Um, but you can't have too many of those, right? You have to have a lot of people down at the other end uh, of the X and Y axis. You have to, have to keep things balanced. Yeah, you eventually you need you still need to get. Let's say that you're rich and stupid. That charges fifty five thousand dollars a year for a sticker price, but you know that you have to get on average from every student. You have to average twenty thousand dollars from each student because that's the way you've organized your budget. Mm-hmm. So. Um, on some big picture level, yes, you, for every kid that you give a $15,000 price to, you've got to get somebody that gives you a $25,000 price. Yeah. So and, will, that, will that look like if we if we ran the numbers, one of those matrices would look like a pretty good scatter plot? I mean, if, if everything works out for the college. Yeah. At most schools, it might vaguely represent a bell curve. Uh-huh. But um, at a lot of schools, uh, and I say vaguely represent because oh, there are a lot of schools that Nobody pays the full price. Hmm. Nobody hmm. pays it because nobody will, right? And there, and I know of a couple of schools that show remain nameless where they maybe have five kids that come that pay the full price, and none of those kids make it through the first year, hmm. right? Um, they are wealthy, but let's just say they're not uh, college ready hmm. for whatever reason, right? Um, so. However, you figure out a way to distribute things so that you end up with an average revenue per student in a class of whatever the number you got to get to, um, that's what you do. Um, and of course, what's happening more and more is that schools are finding that they can't get to the number they're shooting for. Um, the discount rate that uh, the average discount rate um, has gone up, you know, to almost fifty percent now, and it was. Um, you know, 35% 10 years ago, and it was 25% before that. And schools weren't even paying attention to discount rate until the mid-90s. And then all of a sudden they started realizing, wait a minute, we keep giving more and more scholarships away. We ought to pay attention to this. Um, so long and short of it, it's, it's, um, it's a real interesting process because from both sides it looks pretty differently. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways that's part of the problem. Yeah. So that so tuition fit is designed to so this is we've got information starvation going on here, mm-hmm. um, and you're trying to put information where none has previously existed. Or let's just take all of those little tiny bits of information and I'll put them together so that the public has the same information that all the colleges do, um, or that let's just all that that across that whole landscape, the public knows more about what reasonable prices are out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I should say, I think this is important to say, some people have said, well, you're just trying to get people to shop by price. And on one hand, I'm saying, well, yeah, of course. <laughs> but on the other hand, I'm saying, never saying that people are going to shop by price alone and literally nothing else. I don't think anybody buys even expensive items merely by price. Like, I don't care what the car looks like. I don't care what color it is. I don't care if it's got mud flaps. Just give me the cheapest one. Yeah. Nobody well, does that, right? Yeah. Um, you, you, you still pay attention to some other variables, whether you're shopping for a house or a car. And same thing with college. You're going to pay attention to other variables as well. What this allows people to do is to tether their perception of value to an actual price tag and then be able to be much more informed in their shopping process and comparison process. Even after this sort of application cutoff point that has really helped to artificially drive up how much people 
pay for college. I, that, that is a very irritating remark that, that whoever that person was made um, yeah. about price. I kind of really want to immediately give them a dope slap. Um, well, it, you'll have to talk to a vice I, president. No, no names. No names. Um, okay. Well, he has enough grief in his life already, probably. Is but yes, <laughs> right. I I do feel for those folks because they really do have a pretty tough job. <laughs> really? Now I'm now I'm sorry for him. Um, <laughs> send, give me his address, and I'll send him some chicken soup. Um, yeah, that's. <laughs> but, um, but it it uh, it would right now we've got a situation in which uh, four thousand colleges are all trying to become Nordstroms or Harvard, and it would be nice if a couple of them thought maybe not to be the dollar store but maybe Trader Joe's or something like that. I mean there there are lots of other you know models out there potentially in terms of yep. pricing and quality and all the rest of it that uh, a few might follow. And yeah, I think I, this is part of the problem is that colleges have really gotten into this thing of thinking that we have to, we're all special and we're all different and we do it so well and nobody else can do it like we do. And since they're all selling themselves in the same way, I mean, colleges really do suffer from a herd mentality. Mm -hmm. um, and as the public sees that and says, come on, like the emperor is naked, like stop it. And of course the colleges don't want to hear that because they've built this whole thing up and Colleges have an interesting problem in that they have the they have a couple of constituencies that they're trying to please at the same time. They're trying to please uh, the public because mm -hmm. those are the folks who go there and then pay tuition. But then they've also got a subset of alumni and a subset of board members that have a skewed sense of what they're trying to do and what that school is about. And there's a sort of country club vibe to it. And, that, then, there's, and then there's the professors. Right, uh, and those are some wildly different constituencies and stakeholders. Right. Yep. It's, but the point of tuition fit really is, at the end of the day, like we're not trying to just like burn down colleges. We're just trying to make it a fair and even and transparent process for the public, and at the same time. Um, colleges can actually participate in this entity as well. They can subscribe to see this data and they can use this information to help them be more efficient too. Yeah, to talk about uh, that because you had said that this, the, the craziness of this process is craziness for colleges as well. Right. Uh, it's, it's absolutely killing the colleges and this application choke point really is a problem. Mm -hmm. So. What TuitionFit does is on the for the public, the public shares information and benefits both individually and collectively from the sharing of information because now they the public really has all the information that they need and the demographics set this, this, the stage for them to really compare and shop and not be constrained by application choke points and deadlines that have traditionally been in the mix. Mm -hmm. For colleges – Colleges can participate in tuition fit by getting a subscription to the data, and they can also circumvent this traditional application choke point by seeing that a student is stuck with a couple of prices that are quite high for what that student is capable of paying and realizing that that school, that their own school would offer that student a lower price. They can invite that student to talk. By saying, look, we, we could offer you a better price if you had applied here. Would you like to talk? And then if the student says, sure, I'll be glad to talk, then they can take that conversation wherever they want to take it. Mm -hmm. And the fun part about that is that now you start the conversation with price. So that elephant is no longer an elephant in the room. It's just this little thing in the corner. You can spend the rest of the conversation talking about what you do and how you do it and building up the sense of why that price is a good value for what you get. The process as it's currently constructed inverts that, flips it. And so not knowing price, that elephant becomes bigger and bigger and bigger the longer you go. And so that's one of the reasons why people then get price at the end of the day and go, wait a minute. Oh, I feel like I'm getting screwed mm -hmm. because that's, um, that process is backwards. So tuition fit for the college side invites the colleges to participate but allows them to participate – on this same transparent level of let's be honest, let's be open, and let's make price 
a transparent early step in the process and then move it from there. And interestingly, a lot of colleges have said, you know what, I actually really like that. Hmm. That could make what we're doing a lot more efficient. That would allow us to do what we're doing better and maybe even spend less money in the admissions process. Mm -hmm. And boy, if we spent less money in the admissions process, maybe we could pass that savings on in tuition. It's, um, it would certainly be a way of lowering administrative costs, which yes. are the part of higher ed that had gone up, soared, uh, for a wide variety of reasons. And this is one of them. Yep. No question. Um, just while we, as we're finishing up, this seems to finally be leaking through um, these ideas about cost. Um, they used to be dismissed um, as recently as two years ago. Uh, mm -hmm. In the last couple of years, you've got um, very well publicized uh, Purdue um, freezing its tuition, I think now for like the fifth year. Maybe there's. Yep, yep. Uh, you've got St. John's College, the very small colleges uh, in uh, Annapolis and Santa Fe, very small, very expensive, uh, very teacher intensive. Uh, they are announcing a price cut from, I don't think it was 52000 to 35000 Right. Um, in line with what you've said, of course, they were probably charging close something closer to thirty thousand or thirty-five thousand, but they've decided to lower their sticker price rather than inflate it. Right. Right. Um, there, there's a lot going on in there that that is both interesting and potentially sort of underwhelming, okay. depending on the school. Yeah. Um, certainly, with Purdue, just freezing tuition and knowing that whenever you run an organization, your costs go up every year no matter what, right? Mm -hmm. If you just stay the same, your costs are going up because you got to pay a new electric bill, right? And you got to give people salary raises and all that stuff. So Purdue just freezing tuition for years and years and years means that they have to figure out more efficiencies and other revenue sources and um, really do what um, I think really gets to the, the meat of the problem, right? Make college less expensive. Mm -hmm. But for the schools that have done this sort of price reset, there's a few of them that have really reset prices and brought prices down. Mm -hmm. For most, it's been more of a marketing move because when you reset price, you get a whole more applications that year. Mm -hmm. And what you do is while you reset price, you also reset your discount. So if you were at $50,000 a year and your discount was getting people to 25,000 and then you reset your price at 35,000 but then you discount to 25,000 the net price is the same you've just narrowed that band of how much you charged to then get to the discount so it's a it's a marketing move to get more applications because admit them and we've already talked about that right so some schools have just done it as a marketing move. And then those schools generally have said, you know what, this whole reset thing didn't work very well because the next year and the next year and the next year we didn't get any more press, applications came back down, we're right back where we started. Mm -hmm. Some schools have been smart enough to figure out that if they're going to do a price reset, there's a series of implications across the entire institution that if they think those through early enough, it can really help them and reshape the way they do things. And it's not just a marketing move. It really is about trying to bring the price down. And for those, those institutions have found that they can actually pull that off. It's a lot harder, but you can pull it off. So, you know, it's interesting to see with these individual resets what they do and how they work. Um, but this is also a part of the larger problem, which, which college presidents will tell you, is that this pricing model um, is a crazy debacle because you can't really fix it from the inside. You can't really fix it from one institution. Mm -hmm. um, there's got to be some external pressure that moves colleges to be motivated enough to innovate and figure out ways to bring their prices down. My guest today has been Mark Salisbury. He's co-founder and CEO of Tuition Fit, which you can find at tuitionfit, that's T-U-I-T-I-O-N-F-I-T dot O-R-G. Mark, uh, thanks for being uh, a guest for the third time in Historically Thinking, and I hope it's uh, a shorter period before you are on again. Thanks very much. I welcome anybody's uh, input and comments and questions if folks, if listeners have more that they want to ask about. And where can they uh, contact you? They can get me at mark at tuitionfit.org. All right. Thanks very much, Mark. Thanks, Al. See you later. 
for more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. Thank you.